remember last time I preached, it was a great sermon, and I enjoyed listening to it, but I recall he had his Bible up here in the corner, I was nervous the whole time thinking, his Bible's going to fall. I, I know, his, Mariah, what are we going to do if his Bible falls? So I'm going to bring mine down here, safe and secure, because my luck, my Bible would fall. Um, let's pray. Father, we know your word says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, I pray that you would feed your sheep. Feed us, satisfy us in your word. May your spirit go forth and penetrate every heart here. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I thank you for Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. Thank you, Father, that you love us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I had the privilege of leading the devotion at our most recent men's camp out. And the text we are looking at this morning is the same text I focused on during the retreat. And my reason for doing so is pure selfishness. Uh, it's not because I wrote the lesson. I knew there was more in this text that I wanted to dive into, so I use this as an opportunity to do so, and it's been a blessing, and I hope it is to you as well. Now, while driving to the retreat with my two sons, I had to take the time to explain to them a story about me they didn't know, and I thought it'd be wise for them to hear that, to, to prepare them for hearing that. You see, my opening illustration for the devotion described the time when in college at the age of 18, I was arrested by campus police. And I'll let that soak in for a moment. This came as a result of while walking home through our dorm's parking lot, two friends of mine thought it'd be funny to let the air out of the tires of someone they knew. But they failed to see the police car parked nearby. And before they could let any air out, police lights turned on and we were all, well, let's just say, legally transported to a local holding facility. And thankfully, without any discussion, a judge quickly dismissed us. There was no charges, but the facts still remain. Though not charged, I had been arrested, and I needed to tell my boys that. And we were driving in my truck in the bucket seat, and Jack Housley in the middle, he, he kept looking up saying, you were arrested? <laughs> like, like you went to jail? Yeah, yeah, your daddy did. And they thought it was humorous to some degree, but for me, it was just an embarrassment and burdensome. Much like this moment, as many of you hear for the first time, one of my many shameful stories that come from what feels like just a lifetime ago. And it still brings about shame and discomfort and remorse. And I find myself often having to fight from allowing my identity to be shaped by these past actions. And I find myself doing this from the other extreme as well. Titles such as outreach pastor, elder, Sunday school teacher, these build up pride within me and I quickly become, it quickly becomes more about who I am and not just how I serve. And this is why as Christians, we must be reminded daily that our identity is never in what we do, either good or bad. Our identity is in Christ. Paul describes this as being hidden with Christ. His actions and being become our true identity. And this is one of the great truths about Jesus. His actions are a part of his being. To read the Gospels and to see Jesus in action is just a revelation of who he is, of who God is. And as we look to the feeding of the 5,000 this morning, I want to remind us all of who God is based on the actions of Jesus. 
So we're going to be looking at Mark's account of this miracle. So please turn with me to Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. And the reason I chose Mark's account is because of what dominates the first half of Mark's gospel, primarily answering the question, who is this man, Jesus? And this is a question that we must all answer for ourselves. And what Mark helps us to see is that left to ourselves, we are spiritually blind. We are unable to answer this question correctly. That it takes a divine revelation for any of us to know who Jesus really is. And this is most evident in Mark when, when Jesus combines, when Mark combines the feeding of the 5,000 that takes place in Jewish territory with the feeding of the 4,000 that takes place in Gentile territory found later in Mark 8. Mark makes it very clear that these two miracles had one primary purpose, to reveal Jesus' true identity. In Mark 8, having just witnessed both the feeding miracles, the disciples begin to ramble and argue amongst each other because they only brought one loaf of bread they had just witnessed Jesus feed over 30,000 people with the combined 13 loaves of bread. And there they were, 12 disciples, one loaf of bread, Jesus to themselves, and they are worried that they don't have enough to eat. Mark's portrayal of their spiritual blindness is not to be over-exaggerated. Mark cannot make his point any more clear. The disciples remain clueless. My daughter and I had a friendly argument the other night over a game of checkers. She refused to believe me that in checkers you are to stack two chips on top of one another when one becomes a king. She believed you just flip the checker over. Now, mind you, I'm 29 years older than she is. I've played a game or two more than her. But our checker pieces even have an indention on the top where the protruding piece of the other checker fits nicely into. But she refused to believe me. And what started out as funny quickly became a little frustrating, and we had to call Mariah into the living room to settle the matter. <laughs> and I could only imagine how frustrating this moment could have been for Jesus in the boat, and that he rebuked them for being so foolish. But Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. He is tender. He points back to both feeding miracles, reminding them of what took place and how much they collected. And then he asked them this. Do you not yet understand? Meaning, don't you get it already? Haven't you seen enough? But Jesus, he knew the answer. He knew their spiritual blindness kept them from seeing him as the son of God. But by referencing the, the two miracles, he wanted them to understand there were great truths hidden within the miracle. And perhaps this is the reason why this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. No greater truth will draw you to Jesus than the truth that we will see in our text this morning. And it's not that Jesus can meet all of our physical needs with what little we have. Yes, that is true. But our brokenness goes much deeper than hunger, so our need is much greater than bread. God sees our true need, and he gives us what we really need. He gives us himself and what is behind all the pain and suffering in the world? It's our absence from God. And no tower that we can build or good work that we do will ever get us to him. He must come to us, and he does this in Jesus. And he comes to us because of who he is. He is compassionate. Coming to us despite our rebellion is as natural to him as our rebellion is to us. He cannot help himself. And I hope what many of you will come to understand this morning, this truth, 
and you will invite Jesus into your life. And that all of us will allow this compassion to give us the strength that we need to not hide in shame or to run in fear because of past or present sin. And that by taking on this identity, we too would be compassionate on others. Now, it's out of my own weakness, unworthiness, and lack of compassion for others that I will now attempt to preach the compassion of God. So please be praying for me. And it truly has been my prayer this week that God would use this feeble attempt of mine of a sermon to do a great work. For some of you, I have been praying all week that God would bring about your salvation, that the Spirit will penetrate your hard heart and he, he will melt it, and for others that you will take what you hear this morning and it will serve you as you start a new year and a new decade. You are reminded anew that God loves you and God cherishes you. So let's, let's look at our verse this morning. Look at verse 30. The apostle returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So what Mark is referring to is what he just wrote in verses 7 through 13. Jesus had just sent out his disciples two by two to not only preach the word, to perform miracles. And they'd done some great work. They have performed exorcisms. They have healed the sick. And now they are returning back to Jesus, excited to tell him all that they have done. And Jesus, calm down, guys. They're, they're coming to him. Calm down, guys. Look, look at Jesus' reaction. That's great, Peter. That's great to hear. This is what Jesus says to him, verses 31 through 32. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going that had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. See, Jesus' concern is for his disciples. He knows they need rest and nourishment. And not only that, we know that Jesus was just saddened to hear the report that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered. So in an attempt to just get a little bit of R&R &R and to pray... They set sail on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to this desolate, remote place that they knew they could retreat to, or so they thought. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's not just Jesus that the crowd is after. Notice how Mark says, and they recognized them. The disciples are starting to gain fame for themselves and because of all the miracles they're performing, they have an entourage. People are following them and they're following Jesus. And use your imagination a little bit. There you are living your ordinary life until this man comes along and he begins to teach as one who has authority and he backs that authority up with all the miracles he performs. Everywhere he goes, something amazing happens. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, his friends begin doing the same thing. You would find yourself in one of three positions. You would either be in need of a miracle and you would do anything for that opportunity to happen. Or you would want the power given to you so you too could perform miracles on other people. Or you would be so hardened and fearful of this new reality you would just want it to end. And this is what makes up the crowd. And John's account helps us to see that this crowd was, was not an ordinary crowd of spectators. This crowd was a mob. John says that after this miracle, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And Jesus and his disciples may have slipped away in a boat, but the crowd is so desperate, they follow them on foot along the shoreline, looking where they're going, building up steam, gathering more and more people along the way. 
Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Verse 44 tells us this crowd was made up about 5,000 men. But when you add in the women and the children, it likely would have been upwards of possibly 20,000 people. Now, could you imagine if you went on vacation and you were met by the seating capacity of Rupp Arena in your hotel lobby? It's a lot of people. Could you imagine the disciples' reaction when they saw this great crowd of 20,000 people wearing Kentucky blue? Mike, I'm telling the story. It's my version. Thankfully, we don't have to imagine what Jesus' reaction was. Look what, look what happens when, when Jesus comes ashore. He went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Notice the pronouns. He went ashore, he saw the crowd, he had compassion. Mark's only focus is on Jesus right now. So forget the crowd, forget the disciples, turn down the noise, and only hear what Mark wants you to know about Jesus. He had compassion on them. He doesn't grumble. He's not upset because his plans were altered. His disposition is just automatically pity. And think back to the last time your plans were unintentionally altered and how you reacted at that moment. I'd be embarrassed to tell you mine, but not Jesus. He sees a greater blessing in this opportunity. And we have to ask, where does compassion like this come from? Well, we can say that he's born with it. It's who he is. It's, it's, it's not a character trait that was developed over many years. Jesus is compassionate because as God, it is his being to be compassionate. And this is a tribute to God over and over in the Old Testament. Think back to the Exodus verse that we just heard read. What was the very first thing that God proclaimed to Moses about himself? That he was merciful. And the word there is, is meant to be compassionate. That's what God wants to know, you to know about him very first thing. I am a compassionate God, and this rings over and over in the Old Testament. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, Nehemiah 9. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their inequity and did not destroy them, Psalm 78. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindness, Isaiah 63. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, Psalm 103, and over and over why do we run from a God like this? So compassionate. Fear and shame. That's why. That's why we run. We believe the lies of the world and not the truths of the scriptures. And then Jesus shows up on scene and over and over, you know what the gospel writers say about Jesus? He saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. And this is not a coincidence. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that God is compassionate? Well, to have compassion is not only to have pity on someone, it's to have pity and to take action. You don't leave it alone. And I like what Tim Keller has to say about God's compassion. He says it means that God's heart is voluntarily attached to ours. You see, love's desire is always to share itself with others. My sister-in-law just told us a story over Christmas break about a father who overheard his biological son tell his adopted son, well, at least I'm not adopted. And that broke the father's heart, and he had to respond to it. He had to address it, and he did it lovingly, but he did it jokingly. He said to his biological son, son, I'm stuck with you. I chose him and paid a lot of money for him too. Well, the son got the point, okay? They're each equally loved. 
They're each equally sons. There's gospel truth in this father's reply. God chose to love us and paid a great price for us, all because it flowed out of his compassion. And the compassion he has for us is this deep-rooted grieving that means to mourn or to weep. It means to mourn or to weep. It's deep inside of him. It's who he is. And it's Tim Keller who led me to look at B.B. Warfield's work, The Emotional Life of Christ. I highly recommend it. And it's there Warfield points out that Jesus weeps 20 times for every one time he laughed. Jesus' heart is so attached to ours that he just can't help to weep because he sees our sin and he sees our suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or admit to do and more in light of what they suffer. This is the heart of Christ. Christ comes ashore he sees the crowd, and he has compassion for them. Why? Because he doesn't see the size of the crowd. He sees their suffering. Now, I can admit this now that my career is over. I was a horrible EMT. I have a weak stomach when it comes to both sight and smells, not a character trait you want in emergency medicine. I was usually the one closest to the door and not to the patient. Not Jesus. He is the good physician who looks past the effect of sin and only cares about the cause and the cure. And this crowd was made up of sick people, poor people, desperate people. And Jesus wasn't put off by any of it. He came ashore and he stepped right into it. It's just a great reminder for us as we minister in this part of the city. Sin causes us to stray and we can stray pretty far and some people are just hard to be around. Some are off-putting. But we need to have compassion for pe people because they have been led astray. And this is Jesus' concern. Look at the rest of verse 34. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is a quote from Numbers 27, 17, where God's compassion is on display for Israel when he chooses Joshua to be the shepherd that will guide them into the promised land. And I love what B.B. Warfield has to say about Jesus here as the shepherd. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were distressed and scattered as sheep not having a shepherd. They are compared to sheep which have been worn out and torn by running hither and thither through the thorns with none to direct them and have now fallen helpless and hopeless to the ground. The sight of their desperate plight awakens our Lord's pity and moves him to provide the remedy. Jesus sees our suffering. Do any of these describe you? Worn, torn, running, helpless, hopeless, desperate. Jesus sees it, and he has compassion for you. And Romans helps us to understand what we are to do with this compassion when it says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Jesus comes to us out of compassion, and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. When we think about our sin and, and what we continue to do and things that continue to tempt us and the shame keeps coming on, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, if you are in Christ, God is not mad at you and God is not judging you. And we learn in Isaiah that God takes our sin away and he remembers them no more. Why? It's not because he just merely forgets them. God knows our sin better than we do. No, God chooses never to hold those sins against you anymore. So when Satan reminds you of your sin, you know what you do? You remind yourself of God's kindness and what he has done for you in Christ. You remember it and you receive it. Augustine said, God is always trying to give us 
good things, but our hands are always too full to receive them. We need to stop trying to earn God's kindness and only receive it. As Christians, we don't have to let our sin be a barrier between us and God anymore because he has provided the remedy. And what's his remedy for our brokenness, for our suffering? Well, it's found in verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. Now, Luke's account tells us that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Our suffering comes as a result when we rule and reign for ourselves, when we build our own little kingdoms. Jesus' remedy is for us to enter into his kingdom, into his care, and to live under his reign, and to receive the rest and the peace and the goodness that the good shepherd offers in Psalm 23. And as we move on to the miracle, know that the feeding of the 20,000, not just the 5,000, is child's play for Jesus. Their greatest need like ours will be much more challenging for Jesus to provide, and he'll give them a visual picture of how this kingdom will come to take place and just how much compassion God has. Look at verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into their surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the stage is now set. We have this massive crowd who wanted to see Jesus so bad that they left in haste and they followed him and they failed to bring any provisions of food. And since the disciples never had time to go buy food for themselves, they don't have any food to offer this crowd. It's getting late in the day. And the disciples know something has to be done. So they just come up with the most obvious solution. Jesus, we, we need to take a break. We need to send these people out to get something to eat. Look at Jesus' response. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. To which they responded, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? And this was a great sum of money at, at this time, perhaps the equivalent of $10,000 in today's money. But John's account lets us to know that this crowd was so big that not even $10,000 was enough to feed this crowd. So Jesus' solution wasn't practical for the disciples. We have no food, there's no food here, and we don't have enough to even buy them food. We need to send them out, and they need to take care of themselves. Disciples are thinking, Jesus just isn't thinking clearly right now. And if they weren't thinking that then, they will be after what happens next. Verse 38. And he said to them, How many loaves do we have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. So what happens is they went out and they searched the crowd and they report back to Jesus, the only food that we can find is the lunch of a little boy. And he has five dinner rolls and two fish. Don't you just love how Jesus cares for children and how he includes them in the gospel story? John tells us that it was a little boy who had this lunch, five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish. 20,000 people, and it's a little boy who had the common sense to bring food with them. And look what Jesus does with it. In Jesus' fashion, he does this. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Perhaps a clue that this will be the good shepherd who lead his sheep to greener pastures. So they sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. 
They took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were of five thousand men. Notice the sequence of events. Jesus takes the bread, Jesus blesses the bread, Jesus breaks the bread, and Jesus gives the bread. The original language helps us see what Mark is really drawing our attention to. The first three actions have share the same tense, but the fourth is in a different tense that conveys this repeated action. So here's what, what really happened. Jesus took the bread. Jesus blessed the bread. Jesus broke the bread. And Jesus gave the bread. And he gave the bread. And he gave the bread. And he kept giving the bread until they were all satisfied teaching us clearly that whatever Jesus gives us, he gives us in abundance. And whatever we receive, we receive from Jesus will bring satisfaction. And this is most evident by what the bread is symbolic of. Not only does Jesus equate himself as the bread of life in the Gospels, but fast forward to what happens the following year during Jesus' last Passover meal. Notice on the screen with me how Jesus feeds his disciples at the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. You see that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just the multiplication of the bread, it was the breaking of the bread. Jesus was giving them a visual picture of how he will provide for them their greatest need, satisfy their greatest hunger. He will give them the most abundant thing that he can. He will give them himself. And by doing so, he will be broken. The good shepherd does this by entering into the suffering of the sheep. The author of Hebrews tells us, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is broken because the wrath of God reserved for us was poured out on him on the cross. The shepherd laid down his staff and he picked up his cross and he was broken. And we can now look back on that and be satisfied. Samuel Rutherford once said, Whenever I find myself in the cellar of affliction... I always look about for the Lord's choicest wines. Do you find yourself in the cellar this morning? Either tired of how your kingdom just continues to fail you, or perhaps frustrated because you just want to experience more of God's kingdom in your life, more of that blessing? If you are in the dark cellar, look for the choicest wine. Look to Jesus, who spilled out his blood for you, and he says, drink this in remembrance of me. If you remember anything about this morning, remember this. Jesus' compassion for you came at a great cost to him, so you never have to doubt God's love for you. If you have trouble remembering that, just look back to the bread. Always look back to the bread that was broken for you. As we close this morning, I want to briefly look how the Lord involves his disciples into this kingdom work. Like the bread, their actions are symbolic of a greater action. Jesus said, you feed them. And then he instructs them to place them in groups of 50s and 100s. And when you're dealing with 20,000 people, this is a lot of groups. There's a lot of people to be fed. This is a lot of work. It is hard work. It is tiresome work. 
And Jesus would give them bread and fish, and they were to take it to the crowds. Going to Jesus for the fish, going back to the crowds. Going to Jesus for the fish and bread, going back to the crowds. And this continual repetition, coming to Jesus, going to the crowds, this would have been amazing to the disciples. The more they did it, the more they would be amazed, and this image of Jesus breaking and giving would be burned into their minds. And Jesus is teaching them that as disciples, you do need to have compassion on his people. The Apostle Paul tells us that God comforts us in our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we receive from God. But I think there is even more here than just that we need to be compassionate people. They don't see it yet, but Jesus is visually demonstrating to his disciples how he will one day be broken. And in making the disciples deliver the bread, he is also demonstrating to them that they will be the ones responsible for delivering this message to the masses, to the poor and needy. Take the story of my broken bread to those who need it most. Symbolically, what are they doing? They are taking the message of the Lord's Supper to his people, meaning they were explaining to them how Jesus was broken for them and their sins can be forgiven if they turn from their sin and believe. Jesus provides the compassion we need. It's our job to share it. And that's why Paul says, I decide to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, this may be a stretch. I'm dabbling into gym territory here. I'm not a biblical theologian, but it hit me while preparing the sermon. I think perhaps we might see the union of Christ and the inclusion of the disciples in kingdom work hidden within the boys' lunch. Bread and fish. Bread and fish. Jesus, the bread of life. The disciples, fishers of men. And how did Jesus send his disciples out earlier? Two by two. Two pieces of fish. I don't know. But this all comes together in a separate event. In Luke 24, 28, you'll notice some familiar themes here. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's disguised as a stranger. And Jesus meets these two guys on the road to Emmaus. And he stops to explain to them all the scriptures. So we have spiritual blindness. We have two men. We have the teaching of the kingdom of God. All things found in Mark 6. And look at the verse with me on the screen. Luke 24, 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, same time as the feeding of the 5,000. And the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Look down at verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What gives us eyes to see? The breaking of the bread. Or what we call the gospel. Faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ, hearing of the broken bread. The story of redemption found in Scripture culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He provides the remedy, and he sends us out to the masses with the message. On a recent trip to Chicago, my wife and I attended the Sunday services of Holy Trinity Church, this amazing church at work reaching the lost in the heart of the city. 
And it was there I was reminded of Rahab and how she will forever be known as Rahab the prostitute because her deeds will forever be recalled in God's word. This was the prostitute that you recall that hid Joshua's spies from the king of Jericho, all because she had heard of God's goodness to Israel in the Exodus. Wanting to serve this good God, Rahab hides the spies, and she's later rewarded entrance into Israel. Now, Rahab, she'll forever be known as a prostitute, not because it's who she is, but as a reminder of what she was saved from. God's compassion reached out to this Gentile prostitute by allowing her to hear of God's mercy to his people in the Exodus, and she believed it. And we see the abundance of, of God's compassion when he allows Rahab to marry Salmon. And they have a son named Boaz. And Boaz marries a girl named Ruth. Gentile like his mother. And they become the great-great-grandparents of King David. And it's just fascinating to think that the blood of a Gentile prostitute flowed through the veins of both King David and the King of Kings. What a great story of redemption Rahab is. It's our job as disciples to make a greater story of redemption known. And we don't need to invest in evangelism books to, to learn how to do this. I'm not knocking them. I have a shelf full of them. But we really do just need a miracle, the miracle story found here as most often displayed in children's books, the feeding of the 5,000. Our message must never stray from Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. And what makes a good evangelist? I think that's simple too. You just keep going back to the bread. You keep reminding yourself that Christ was broken and bled for you. You know, as much as I hate to share the story of my arrest because of the embarrassment I feel when I do, the truth of the matter is, when I reflect on not only my, my past sins, but the sins I continue to struggle with today, it's when I reflect on those times that I have a deeper desire to share Christ with others. It's because when I do, I, I not only recall what God has saved me from, but the cost at which he saved me. How can I not be compassionate to other people when God has done so much for me? And instead of running, I find myself using my experience to relate to other people. And I think Rahab probably helped more than just the Josh, than Joshua spies. I think she probably surrounded herself with the poor and needy in Israel and kept telling them what God had done for her, a prostitute. We just need to remember to keep going back to the bread. As my two sons and I were returning from the camp out, I overheard a different conversation than the one we had on the way there. I overheard Rivers explaining to Jack Housley with a Hershey bar in his hand, Jesus took the chocolate, Jesus blessed the chocolate, Jesus broke the chocolate, and Jesus gave the chocolate. And Jack Housley, he kept giving the chocolate. I think Jesus laughed hearing this too. Bread or chocolate, I don't think Jesus cares how you tell the story, just as long as you understand its meaning. Don't you understand? Looking to the bread and believe that Christ was broken for you. The suffering of the righteous for the unrighteous. You don't have to suffer anymore. Just be fed and be satisfied. Return to the Lord that he may have compassion on you. For those of you who have already confessed faith, this means receive what you have been given. Don't hold on to shame or hide in fear. Don't bury yourself in judgment. Use your sin as a means to remind you of God's compassion on you. Everything that you have been shown. 
And if you haven't confessed faith this, this morning, receiving God's compassion is as simple as hearing and believing. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're ready to make that confession this morning, don't put it off. The Bible says, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, it will take an eternity to thank you for the compassion that you have shown to us. And we are just so thankful that we have that eternity. It was given to us by Christ Jesus when he was broken and bled for us and was raised from the dead. Thank you for this good news, Lord, and draw us closer to you with it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.